from Minnesota Public Radio. born on the night John F. Kennedy was elected president. Religiously, spiritually, I was a child of my time. I grew up in Oklahoma, the granddaughter of a Southern Baptist preacher. Through him, I experienced the drama of faith. But my parents had turned their backs on his stern rules for a fallen creation. We went to church on Sunday. Monday through Friday, I was raised to win, to perfect myself, and to do so in the American way of accomplishment and accumulation. My father listened to election returns as my mother gave birth. <laughs> he was a political operator in a culture where politics is ruthlessly provincial, a blood sport. I watched him wage wars on the pages of newspapers and by way of radio ads. As an Oklahoma Democrat, he was more conservative than most Massachusetts Republicans. <laughs> but he imprinted me with what, in the wider world, are hybrid instincts. In that decade of my birth, he was a true believer in civil rights and the war on poverty. I loved his passion and idealism. They became entangled with cynicism and pain in the years of my childhood in which good men and high ideals fell one by one, shot down all too easily and finally by other men. Later, I landed in the heart of divided Europe, confronting the Cold War clash of good and evil as a young journalist, and then at the level of diplomatic and strategic high policy. This was the era of the Berlin Wall and the Iron Curtain, and terrifying enemies who, in contrast with our current enemies, now appear wondrously civilized and contained. Granted, they had thousands upon thousands of weapons of mass destruction, long-range, medium-range, short-range, trained on our major cities, but we knew this. We had our weapons trained on them, too, in commensurate measure. And when I arrived in Berlin, in divided Berlin, in the early 1980s, no one imagined the whimper with which the Soviet empire would end. And the wall running through Berlin, a material symbol of the ideological iron curtain that cut through the heart of the ancient continent, it appeared as the shape of forever, an unshakable truth of our lifetime. I hold on to these memories now as a reminder that there is at any given moment much reality we do not see and more change possible than we can begin to imagine. I believed then that all of the important and interesting problems in the world were political and all of the solutions too, and for a while I threw myself body, mind, and spirit at this conviction. But I changed my mind. This book is a chronicle of a change of mind and of a discipline of listening that keeps my mind and my spirit stretching. There are places in human experience that politics cannot analyze or address, and they are among our raw, essential, heartbreaking, and life-giving realities.
Thank you all for being here tonight. Creating Speaking of Faith has been a great adventure. Creating it in years in which the world changed around us, in which the world changed around us and religion moved from the sidelines to the center of world affairs and American life. We started piloting this program at Minnesota Public Radio and American Public Media in late 2000. And on September 11, 2001, I was in Washington, D.C. to raise our first big grant for the program. That meeting was canceled as we all watched airplanes crash into buildings and the Pentagon in flames. And I drove back to Minnesota in my rental car, knowing that I had this one little hour of radio with which perhaps I could address some of the spiritual confusions and questions that had been raised by those events. In all these years, people have asked me, how did I come to care about such questions? Uh, how am I changed by these encounters I have week after week with people across the world's traditions? How do I see the world differently because of them? I can't answer those questions in five minutes, and so I've written this book in part to give them the textured answers they deserve. I do something in my radio work and in my book that I call Remembering Forward. It's inspired by a line I love in Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass. He wrote, I think the White Queen says, it's a poor memory that only works backward. And this captures some of the profound and concrete learning in my life of conversation. I believe that we are all theologians in some sense. We build our understanding of ultimate truths, of what is sacred, through the raw materials of the lives we've been given. My early life, in and out of faith, found its reasons between frontier Protestantism and secular global politics two arenas that still bracket our contemporary struggles today. My maternal grandfather was the Reverend C.T. Perkins. I called him Gaggy. My later fascination with religion had surely to do with his singular integrity among all the members of my family. Here I use that word integrity strictly. He had it all together for better or worse. He discerned certain truths about the nature of the universe and he lived by them. They both clarified and constrained his range of vision and movement. My mother grew up forbidden to dance, swim, go to movies, wear pants, or play cards. But she did not subject me to his rules, and so I was free to be intrigued by him. I could never buy into the popular idea in our family that he was a tyrant. He was funny. He told jokes. He laughed easily. He bought a farm after he retired from evangelizing, planted a vegetable garden, and lovingly built wooden birdhouses. Even as he preached hellfire and brimstone, he had a sense of play. He was a man of God with a sense of humor, and to this day, that is a combination I admire and seek out. Also, though he only had a third-grade education, my grandfather possessed a strange, prodigious intelligence. He could perform complex mathematical feats in his head. 
After his death, I inherited the Bibles he studied and preached by, mighty leather-bound King James versions with feather-thin pages, and I found page after page marked with notes, annotations, cross-references, every margin full of observations that speak to a love for the life of the mind. From an early age, I sensed this in myself, an unlearned pleasure I could take in ideas, the written word, and the thoughts in my head, their powers of making sense. I believe that Gaggy held intellectual clarity and personal pleasure in a truce with his faith. He kept them a respectable distance away from beliefs and rules he had accepted as true and beyond question, indeed dangerous to think through to the end. He was as passionate physically as he was spiritually and handsome to the end of his life with sharp cheekbones and an elegant bald head. He had eloped with my grandmother Mary, a petite dark-haired beauty at the piano in one of the churches where he evangelized. Exactly nine months later, so I heard it many times, <laughs> she gave birth to a stillborn boy on their kitchen table. C.T. and Mary believed they would never have children until my mother came along like a miracle nine years later. There was a fear in Gaggy, as large as his laughter, as vigorous as his mind. And the Christian faith, as I learned it from him, saw human beings as weak creatures set loose in a world awash with dangers. The wages of sin, as the Apostle Paul said it, and my grandfather heard this connected exclusively with individual, often sexual, morality, was death. He carried this conviction as a burden, a grave personal responsibility to stave off eternal damnation one life at a time. My children love this story about my grandfather, rich with echoes of Eden and Apocalypse. Once in the summertime, while I was helping him do chores around the yard of a little mission church in his charge, I found myself in a shed with a large, dark, coiled snake. I raced out of the shed screaming. Gaggy came to my rescue, of course. He harassed the snake into the open with a hoe, and it reared up as tall as him in my memory, or taller, looking him in the eyes. I can still conjure that moment in my mind's eye to this day. The preacher and the serpent. Salvation and damnation embodied and facing off. After a few heart-stopping failed swings, Gaggy severed the snake's head. This is my emblematic memory of my grandfather. I hold on to my memories of my grandfather's complexity his fear and fallenness, along with his humanity and virtues, against stereotypes of conservative Christianity that are alive in our culture now. I've also come to see that the rock-solid certain aspects of his faith are the foundation upon which all of my questions and ideas now are planted. He taught me to trust in an overriding sense behind the universe— I learned from him to look for grace and for truths that reveal themselves at times baldly, but just as often between the cracks in my ability to see and hear what is important. Above all, he imparted me 
with a sense of belovedness woven into the very fabric of life. But the religiosity of my childhood ceased to make sense to me as I moved into the wider world beyond Oklahoma uh, as a young adult. Ultimately, I ended up in divided Germany for most of the 1980s, most of my 20s. I could not have chosen a better place than Germany to confirm the sophisticated late 20th century view that religion was extraneous and dying. But while I was there, religious figures unsettled my political view of the world, and so did the human beings who my politics were designed to save. I first met the original memoirist of the Holocaust, Elie Wiesel, in that vanished, divided Berlin. He survived the Nazi reign of terror, but his sister and father and six million other Jews succumbed. I had become a journalist by this time, schooled by some great New York Times reporters. Wiesel was visiting Berlin for the first time since the Holocaust as a guest of the German government. He had asked to meet with a group of young Germans. He was nervous about this meeting, and afterwards he was visibly shaken. Together with another journalist, I sat with Wiesel and his wife. He said, I had never before considered that it could be as painful to be a child of those who ran the camps as a child of those who died in them. I was astonished that Wiesel, a victim of German genocide, was open to seeing the tragedy and resilience of the human spirit on every side of it. His words unsettled and moved me. They stirred conclusions I was struggling to articulate in that country with a tortured past and present. I was thoroughly caught up in the enduring, strategic, geopolitical consequences of Germany's descent into Nazi terror. Yet through Elie Wiesel's eyes, goals like human redemption and healing, and not just retribution, economic rebuilding, and balances of power, also appeared urgent. I felt that Wiesel's words belonged on the front pages of newspapers, that they should be shouted to the world. But I believed this had nothing to do with God. Wiesel's faith, as he wrote in Night, had been consumed forever by the flames of the ovens at Auschwitz. Two decades would pass before I could speak with him again and be surprised again by his words. The voice of the Christian theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer also broke into my thinking in those years. There is no clearer voice of Christian theology formed by the tragedies and terrible mysteries of history than Bonhoeffer. A pastor and a pacifist, the son of a gracious German family, he became involved in the July 20, 1944 plot to kill Hitler. He was executed in the German system of terror that Elie Wiesel survived. Before Bonhoeffer died, though, he brought weighty, creative, challenging theology into the world. 
In my radio life now, Bonhoeffer's name punctuates my conversations with wildly different people. I found that many others take solace and courage in a phrase of Bonhoeffer's that emboldened me even in the years in which I was defiantly not a religious person. He wrote from prison in 1944, I'm still discovering right up to this moment that it is only by living completely in this world that one learns to have faith. I mean living unreservedly in life's duties, problems, successes and failures, experiences and perplexities. In so doing, we throw ourselves completely into the arms of God. practical irony took hold in my years in Berlin that I felt most alive on the bleaker, grayer, eastern side of the wall. My most beloved friends there were a Russian painter, Kolya, and his exuberant translator wife, Crystal. They introduced me to other friends, teachers, doctors, writers, carving out spaces of camaraderie and comfort beneath the exterior of that semi-totalitarian world. I spent many evenings with them in darkly lit pubs, thick with cigarette smoke and poetry and yearning and dreams made more beautiful by the fact that the dreamers solidly believed they would never, ever come true. Many of their desires were heartbreakingly easy in the world I would return to before midnight to ride a motorcycle across America, to publish an essay, to see Rembrandt in the Louvre. In those hours drawn out by drink and food and music, few inconsequential words were spoken. Joy and laughter were deepened because they were tinged with sadness at other experiences lost to possibility. Vicariously, in that now-vanished communist capital, I was learning the exhilarating intensity that can accompany human catastrophe. I struggle not to glorify it in memory now. But it was teaching me about the human condition. It was pressing me to question definitions of power and meaning that would eventually haunt me and drive me from Berlin. Success and satisfaction could rarely be sought by way of public accomplishment in that world. The state superimposed its will on nearly every detail of its citizens' outer lives. But in response, ordinary people defended and grew their inner lives defiantly. They poured creativity and energy into their intimate circles of family and friends. They discerned truth or betrayed it at a deeply personal cost. Back home on the western side of the wall, I walked through an idiosyncratic Berlin side door to diplomacy. 
At 25, I became a special assistant, first to the senior American diplomat in West Berlin, and then to the U.S. ambassador to Bonn. I felt increasingly torn between my empathy with human life in the East and a strategic view from the West that was turning me into a hawk. I could have certain conversations in those years more fluently in German than in English, conversations about Pershing II and cruise missiles, Soviet deceptions and intransigence, the SALT II Treaty. But where did the resilience of the human spirit express itself at this level of policy, I wondered? And could this level of policy address the spiritual underpinnings of human experience? Are the life and death threatened by nuclear, nuclear missiles worth living or dying for? These kinds of questions dogged me through my years in Berlin. I knew that just as worlds of human dignity flourished beneath the East's surface of want, there were layers of human want beneath the surface of Western plenty that I was engaged in defending. I was drawn to Germany originally because the world's great symbolic divisions swirled at its heart. But it sent me away with an attention to the human life that swirls full of contradiction and beauty and grief and defiance beneath the grandest categories of history and politics. Now I see myself as engaged in probing for human and spiritual dynamics beneath our present surfaces of rancor. I'm able to do so in part because I began to imagine, in the years after I left Berlin, how it might be possible to take religion seriously, reconciling it with my mind and with everything I knew of the world. We miss the essence of great religious figures, Karen Armstrong insists, if we imagine them sitting, uttering a list of doctrines. And our theology, she says, should be like poetry. This is a lovely and important way to understand why we can't compare faith flatly to reason and declare it intellectually inferior. Its territory is the drama of human life, where art is more precise than science, where ideas are lived and breathed. Our minds can be engaged in this realm as seriously as in the construction of argument or logic, but in a different way. Life and art both test the limits and landscape of argument and logic. We apprehend religious mystery and truth in words and as often perhaps beyond them. In the presence of beauty, in acts of kindness, in silence. Silence is an endangered quantity in our time, though monasteries and retreat centers are filling up with a new kind of pilgrim, modern people stealing away for solitude, starved for silence. Silence embraced stuns with its presence, 
its pregnant reality, a reality that does not negate reason and argument, but puts them in their place. Quiet and submission born of fatigue were the beginnings of wisdom for me after Berlin. Fresh air and the sun's warmth, almond and apricot and lemon trees, fresh bread and strong Spanish coffee, the ocean in late afternoon, these were its elements. I handed my resignation to the ambassador and his wife, believing I was headed for Washington in a matter of months. But first I decided to go back to one of the most beautiful places I had ever visited, Dea, a village ringed by mountains on the Spanish island of Mallorca. I put my furniture into storage and packed two suitcases, out of which I would live, as it turned out, for the next two years. Alone in Dea, I began to realize how tired and confused I was. I felt this physically before I could turn it into ideas and words. This was salutary for me. I had made my way through the world up to now, and this is still my greatest virtue and vice rolled together by my wits alone, head first. I forced myself out of bed at daybreak every day and rushed a silly, shallow novel about Berlin into being. I thought this was my purpose for being there and the accomplishment I would have to show for it. But in moments I thought were not productive, I looked out the tiny window by my desk. I saw mountain, sky, and air that dwarfed nuclear weapons and the life and death they seemed to threaten. I breathed deeply. The world began to realign itself more generously, or rather my vision did. None of this was logical. None of it made sense. Quite early, I put away most of the books I'd brought along. I read Rilke, whom I had loved for years and whose gorgeous, iconoclastic language felt right in this place. I reread his advice to a young poet to have patience with everything unresolved in your heart and to try to love the questions themselves as if they were locked rooms or books written in a very foreign language. Don't search for the answers which could not be given to you now because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps then, someday far in the future, you will gradually, without even noticing it, live your way into the answer.
In our time, many essential human questions and institutions seem to be up for grabs. Definitions of the beginning and the end of life, of marriage, of community, of government. And we've let our most important discussions on these questions be framed by strident answers, by poles of competing certainties. But I believe that most of us between those poles, left, right, and center, know that at the very least, we have lots of questions in common with different others, and that for the sake of our children, we want to live into some new answers together. One false dichotomy we've set up along the way is that the insights of science and religion must inevitably clash, that they are irreconcilably at odds. I love my conversations on speaking of faith with scientists, and those are also some of our listeners' favorite conversations. We've even gone back to the legacy of Darwin and Einstein and found riches there. Now I know that even as episodes of religious hostility to science make headlines in this country, there is a lively interface between religious thinkers and scientists across many traditions, globally and in many fields, astronomy, computer science, biology, physics, genetics. Beyond our culture's entrenched debates, a parallel universe of dialogue is unfolding. Things in this universe confound and transcend the narrow imagination of our culture wars. There are points of disagreement, to be sure, and contrasting perspectives and areas where the conversation stops. But blinders off, defenses down. I see that scientists, especially those who work with mathematics, possess a reverence for beauty as strong as their reverence for reason. If an equation is not elegant and beautiful, they will tell you as a solemn point of fact, it is likely not true. Science's theoreticians are as likely to employ analogy and metaphor as poets or mystics. They routinely proceed to new heights of knowledge by way of faith in things unseen. Images and ideas from the world of science repeatedly give me new, creative ways to think about the rationality of religious modes of thought. The wildly imaginative discipline of physics alone is rife with pointers. Contemporary physics revolves around objects, premises, quarks, for example, and strings that no one has ever seen or expects to see. But worlds of passion and discovery and progress thrive on them because the idea of them gives intelligibility to the whole of what can be measured and experienced and observed. Or consider this, a scientific puzzle that Einstein chewed on, the question of whether light is a particle or a wave was resolved with the unexpected, seemingly illogical conclusion that it is both. And here's the key that made that discovery possible. How we ask our questions affects the answers we arrive at. Light appears as a wave if you ask it a wave-like question. 
and it appears as a particle, if you ask it, a particle-like question. This is a wonderful template for understanding how contradictory explanations of reality can simultaneously be true. It's not so much true that science and religion reach different answers on the same questions of human life, which is how our cultural debate has defined the rift between them. Far more often, they simply ask different kinds of questions altogether, and the responses they generate together illuminate human life more completely than either could do alone. aware as I speak and as we put the show on the air every week that not everyone hears the word religion and associates it with a word like illuminating or imagines it as I do as a potential source of intellectual and spiritual vitality even in conversation with science or medicine or politics. One of the great challenges of the work I do is that all of the words around this subject have become loaded Religion, faith, and spirituality, each of these words is richly meaningful for some of us and difficult for others for understandable reason. My interest is in reclaiming all of the connotations of these aspects of life as they are lived. I want to explore the whole story of religion in the world within and beyond headlines of violence. And people often ask me, why do you think religion is so dangerous? Well, religion is dangerous because it is powerful. It is an elemental aspect of human experience. It is a container for that fraught uh, experience of human identity. But I do believe that our spiritual traditions also contain some of the most powerful correctives we have against religious excesses. When I first interviewed people across the Christian world, I began to imagine religious truth as something splintered and far-flung for good reason, too vast for one tradition to encompass. To encompass. I saw reformers across time as people who noticed a scattered piece of the Christian truth that the church itself was neglecting. They picked it up and loved its beauty, and saw it as necessary 
and embodied its virtues. The Anglicans saw common prayer, Lutherans saw the Bible, Mennonites saw pacifism, Calvinists saw intellectual rigor, and the Quakers saw silence. This analogy holds as I now explore the splinters of all the world's traditions. The gentle single-mindedness of Zen complements the searching discipline of Theravada Buddhism. The exuberant spirituality of Sufism rises to meet the daily lived piety of Sunni and Shiite Islam. But truth and beauty interact with human frailty. The shadow side of my tale of a world of scattered truth is that as soon as human beings pick up a piece of the truth, they make their mark on it. They codify and literalize. They distort the rest of the picture to fit their chosen center. This happens with every kind of truth, surely in politics as well. But religious truth, flattened out, becomes an especially blunt instrument when it enters the political theater of debates and power plays, a weapon with the same transcendent power religion has to inflame hearts, to infuse life and death with meaning. There is a difference, of course, between religion and spirituality, and some say that religion alone is what complicates our political life. Religions would be the containers of faith, containers malleable and corruptible in the hands of the people who fashion and control them. Spirituality would be faith's original impulse and essence. I appreciate this distinction, and at the same time, I'm wary of drawing it too starkly. Religious traditions are bearers of manifold beauty and a weight of human reverence across time. They sustain disciplines and rituals human beings crave as much as they crave raw encounters with the divine. From our first breath, we need structure and routine as deeply as we delight in mystery. In some mysterious way, containing religion helps to unlock the sacred within us. It enables us to participate in the human encounter with the divine, even when our own spirits are dry. Even in those times, we can say the words and sing the songs and find courage in them, borne along by the hope and trust and company of others. Rabbi Sandy Eisenberg Sasso gave me the best illustration I know of the difference between spirituality and religion. On Mount Sinai, she says, something extraordinary happened to Moses. He had a direct encounter with God. This was a spiritual experience. The Ten Commandments were the container for that experience. They are religion. I find this example wonderful because it gets precisely at the wrong way religion is often taught and the way it enters politics through words and positions. We proclaim and pass on the rules. We divorce them from the sweep of the spiritual history by which they were discerned, a history that tells of an incomplete and ever-evolving human capacity to comprehend the nature of God 
and the ultimate meaning of religion. I like the analysis of a Croatian-American theologian, Miroslav Volf, who I've interviewed, who has formed and tested his theology in a place in the world where people have many times waged war in the name of faith. And he describes religion that justifies violence as thin religion, religion reduced to a formula. It does not let the complex, thick texture of practice, tradition, and text resonate in the soul and respond to complicated human reality. Thin religion also becomes manipulable. It comes to look like ideology. Traditional journalism, the stuff that fills our news, is good at covering thin religion, which lends itself to crisis and violence. The gentleness of thick, lived religion can elude the calculus of politics and journalism. But I'm out to investigate thick religion. I'm out to expose virtue. <laughs> and still, that is not quite as straightforward as it might sound. I return again and again to the problem of language. Words that connote religious virtue and morality in our culture are freighted by partisan overuse and popular cliché. Love is so watered down as to be practically unusable. Peace smacks of unreality and justice of vengeance and humility of ineffectuality. But virtue and morality are intriguing and thrilling when seen at work in all their complexity. Kindness, an everyday byproduct of all the great virtues, is at once the simplest and most weighty discipline human beings can practice. But it is the stuff of moments. It can't be captured in declarative sentences or conveyed by factual account. It can only be found by looking attentively at ordinary, unsung, endlessly redemptive experience. As a journalist, I'm deeply aware of how strangely tricky it is to make goodness seem relevant, or at least as perversely thrilling as evil. <laughs> as perpetually horrified as we are of terror and brutality and war, we are riveted by them, and we let them define our take on reality. The communications miracles of the 21st century make wondrous connections possible, and yet they also bring us images of horror with an immediacy and vividness that are debilitating. Violent images seem altogether more solid and substantial, more decisive and telling somehow, than kindness, goodness, and lived peace. It is easy to bow down before these images and give in to the despair they preach. But if I've learned anything, it is that goodness prevails not in the absence of reasons to despair, but in spite of them. If we wait for clean heroes and clear choices and evidence on our side to act, we will wait forever. And my radio conversations teach me that people who bring light into the world wrench it out of darkness and contend openly with darkness all of their days. 
Mother Teresa, Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., Dorothy Day, none of them were simple, unsullied heroes in a storybook way. They were flawed human beings who wrestled with demons in themselves as in the world outside. For me, their goodness is more interesting, more genuinely inspiring because of that reality. The spiritual geniuses of the ages and of the everyday simply don't let despair have the last word, nor do they close their eyes to its pictures or deny the enormity of its facts. They say, yes, and, and they wake up the next day and the day after that to live accordingly. few years of speaking of faith, I have met Elie Wiesel for the second time, and this time we talked about prayer and his understanding of God that did endure the Holocaust. I've also explored the resonance of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life and ideas for our time. I've interviewed the great scholar of the three monotheistic traditions, Karen Armstrong, I've interviewed the Zen Buddhist monk and poet Thich Nhat Hanh. He is not a theist, but sitting in his presence felt like the closest I would ever get to sitting in the presence of God. And I've spent a great deal of time these last years in conversation with Muslims from across the spectrum of that tradition. It should not have taken the catastrophic events of September 11th, 2001, for that religion of 1.2 billion people to figure in a Western view of the world. But now our understanding of the world, and to some extent, I think, our hope for the future, is dependent on learning ever more deeply to hear Muslim voices and see Muslim lives that contradict the actions of terrorists. Along the way, I've also interviewed a Quaker acoustic biologist whose spiritual life is formed by her study of the songs of whales and the calls of elephants. I've interviewed physicians and poets and police officers, and I've been surprised and delighted by the insights they've all given me 
into the essential questions that lie behind all religion. What does it mean to be human? What matters in a life? What matters in a death? How to love? How to be of service to each other and to the world? And so after all of this, people often say to me, well, you must be so wise. <laughs> the truth is, like everyone else, I'm left with my own story, my own life to make sense of, my gifts as well as my failings and flaws. I'd like to leave you tonight with two readings from the final chapter of the book. I am helped by my ever-deepening understanding that faith as a whole encompasses and blesses human vulnerability. It took years, even after I had apprehended this idea intellectually, before I thoroughly internalized its implications in my own life. The perfectionist in me is strong, and at first I approached spiritual challenges much as I had approached the Cold War. But gradually, I have been able to understand healing, like faith, as paradoxical, most effective when it incorporates what is broken rather than denying or curing it. I learned from the physician Rachel Naomi Remen, not a religious figure per se, but a kind of quiet, modern-day mystic, that the way we deal with the losses of our lives, large and small, may be what most determines our capacity to be present to the whole of our lives. We burn out, she says, not because we've stopped caring, but because our hearts are too full of grief. Hard realities, the problem of evil, the failure of love on the largest possible scale, and the consequences of endless, needless suffering in the world do not become less troubling with time. Even as I learn new vocabularies of sense and wonder, I continue to find that suffering, too, has imponderable variation. I learn not to imagine that beautiful words and lives will somehow snuff out what is dark and difficult. Again and again, I am fatigued by a sense of powerlessness at injustices and atrocities close to home and far away. But religious traditions give me language and ideas to hold on to ambiguity, the pleasure and pain of human experience that complicate and enliven each other at their depths. I have this redemptive exchange with Dr. Remen, who speaks to these dilemmas of the human condition through her experiences as a doctor. She says, we thought we could cure everything. But it turns out that we can only cure a small amount of human suffering. The rest of it needs to be healed, and that's different. It's different. I think science defines life in its own way, but life is larger than science. Life is filled with mystery, courage, heroism, and love. All these things that we can witness but not measure or even understand but they make our lives valuable anyway. But I ask her, aren't the destructive aspects of life also mysterious and unmeasurable? We can also observe evil. Yes, she concurs, that's certainly true. 
then adds that, you know, the issue is not to eradicate evil. I'm not sure evil can be eradicated. I think it's part of the human condition. The issue is to commit yourself to what's important to you. This kind of journalism I do is as much for myself as for others about looking beyond the horrors of the evening news to the redemptive stories that are not being told, to ways of being in the world that keep sense and virtue and the possibility of healing alive in the middle of the world's complexity. From the beginning of my life of listening, I have observed fierce humility as a quality in the lives of people I admire. But deep spiritual humility defies the connotations of self-debasement, of ineffective meekness that our culture assigns to the word humility, and that I too imagined until I dug into sacred text and lived with my children and embarked on this odyssey of conversation. I know of no richer source of theological enlightenment than parenting. <laughs> this is the body of raw experience with which I constantly revise and fill my image of God as father, as parent, with complex meaning. The God of my childhood was sovereign, all-powerful. The real experience of parenting is more often one of excruciating vulnerability. Our love for our children is often defined by the fact that we cannot spare them pain and save them, that we give them their freedom as necessary steps to creativity, wisdom, and love, that we raise them for the world they go on to create. And the humility of a child moving through the world, discovering everything anew, is closely linked with delight. This original spiritual humility is not about debasing oneself. It is about approaching everything new and other with a sense of curiosity and wonder. It has a quality of fearlessness, too, that I first recognized in monastics and have since experienced in a vast, far-flung communion of saints of many faiths and no faith at all. Spiritual humility intensifies one's sense of the limits of words about God, of words about mystery, their narrowing possibilities, and their vulnerability to distortion by the human frailties even of the institutions created to preserve them. Nevertheless, we keep speaking, St. Augustine said, in order not to remain altogether silent. I started out this adventure with my grandfather's face, stern and full of maddening contradictions, intelligent eyes bright with humor, and the best he could muster of love. Now my head is full of many voices, elegant, wise, strange, full of dignity and grief and hope and grace. Together, we find illuminating and edifying words 
and send them out to embolden work of clarifying, of healing. We speak because we have questions, not just answers. And our questions cleanse our answers and enliven our world. I want to thank Dan Chenard and Mark Anderson for bringing their gifts tonight. And thank you all for coming. Thank you so much. Before we came out here tonight, Sarah Lutman said, this feels like a homecoming, and that's what it feels like for me as well. And speaking of faith, started here, it would not have happened without Minnesota Public Radio and with all, all of the listeners here. And now, you know, we take this out to the rest of the country, but it's really remarkable to be here, that you've, that you've all come tonight to read this to you, and I look forward to our future years of shared conversation. Thank you.